www.thepeopleshow.com. Well, morning, everyone. Hey, glad you're uh, with us this morning as we're continuing in Romans. And um, I, I know that each week I kind of keep summarizing where we've been. You know, by the end of the book, it's going to be a really long summary if I keep that going. <laughs> I won't. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, it's partly because when we're looking at, you know, a 16-chapter book and we're looking at uh, small sections of that book, it's really easy to not see the forest through the trees, right? Like it's getting a little tunnel visioned and not seeing the big picture. And so I just want to kind of keep reminding us of the big picture that's going on as we dive into these individual sections. So um, just by way of a brief recap um, of the last uh, number of weeks, uh, Paul talks about how God is going to pour out wrath on ungodliness and unrighteousness, but we can be saved from that wrath. We can't attain that salvation on our own. Uh, that's not something we can do. But righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God is credited to us when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. That's the good news or the gospel of Jesus. It's the power of God for salvation to those who believe, Paul says. And that's kind of his starting point. Then he gets into a number of ways of thinking that just don't really cut it when it comes to salvation. Four in particular uh, that we're focusing in on. And the first three were these. The first he covers the problem with pagan thinking, which ultimately is disregarding God specifically as a creator. Right? When we ignore God, uh, then there are no righteous standards, and when there's no righteous standards, anything goes. And this way of thinking, he said, that doesn't lead to righteousness. There's no way it does. It actually brings out the worst in us. The second thing he covers is the problem with moralism. And moralism is uh, ignoring God's righteous standards and creating our own. We become our own judge and jury on what moral behavior qualifies for heaven. Like we decide. And we tend to use this sliding scale. We overlook some of the bad things we've done simply because there are others who have done worse. right? And on that basis, we don't think we should be disqualified from heaven. But that scale is no good, Paul says. And he says someone who presumes God will just overlook offenses is storing up wrath for themselves. Then the third thing that he talks about, which we focused on last week, is the problem with self-effort. Right? Like in some ways, moralism and self-effort are two sides of the same coin. Uh, moralism says, well, I'm not perfect, but I never did anything so bad that I should be disqualified from heaven. Where self-effort says, I've done a pretty good job at following the rules. Certainly my hard work's got to count for something. Well, self-effort is all about following the rules. Now, first of all, that means you have to have the right set of rules. But the problem is you also need to follow them perfectly. Right? You break one law and you're a lawbreaker, Paul says. You're guilty of breaking the whole of the law just by breaking one. No one is perfect, so that's a pretty hopeless way to live. But the good news is, is that most religious belief systems and ways of thinking based on self-effort always have a loophole. And that loophole is another rule that we can follow, that will make up for all the ones that we failed to live up to so far. Right? By following this one rule with just a little bit more effort, that makes our, us right. 
right? And it, it becomes this never-ending cycle that's both exhausting and it's ultimately futile, right? And that's what Paul talks about as he comes into the fourth way of thinking that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, and uh, Paul is challenging, in the text that we're going to look at today, uh, Paul is challenging salvation that is based on religious identity. Right? Salvation that is based on religious identity, or the idea that salvation can be accomplished because of our religious identity. Now our focus is going to be on Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Um, and uh, the title for today is just simply The Problem with Religious Identity. So if you want to turn there, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but specifically, uh, Paul is talking in this context about Judaism, right? The Jewish identity in this passage. And, and that's important to understand and distinguish because there's all kinds of things that are unique to that. But it does have implications for people who are connected or associated with the Christian faith as well today. And I think we'll see that by the end. Okay, so the problem with religious identity. And religious identity, we could de kind of define it this way in terms of our, our conversation this morning. Right? Religious identity is about relying on heritage and history for salvation rather than having genuine faith in Christ. It's about relying on heritage and history for salvation rather than having genuine faith in Christ. And Paul actually began uh, setting up this argument back in chapter 2. Uh, there was some overlap between self-effort and religious identity. But... Um, so just a couple of verses to pull to your attention. Romans 2.17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. And he goes on, and you jump to verse 25. For circumcision, a very Jewish thing, is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Verse 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. Okay? So, even back then, Paul begins to argue that the real true Jew is someone who has the right heart and the right spirit, the spirit of God within them. It's not just being a Jew by birth or by association or keeping the letter of the law. It's about the heart. And it's about the Spirit. Okay? And so the problem, the problem with relying on your religious identity is this. It creates a false sense of entitlement. And it prevents someone from turning to Jesus. Right? When we rely on our religious identity for salvation, or we think that that's going to accomplish it, it's creating a false sense of entitlement. It prevents us from turning to Jesus. And so Paul addresses this now, this idea or this aspect now by uh, kind of posing a series of questions in the text. A series of questions that the Jewish leaders or really any Jewish person may have asked in response to the idea that salvation comes through faith, not through their religious identity. Okay, so we're going to see how this unfolds. It's kind of like five sets of questions or different questions that we'll work through. So Romans 3, 1 through 2, and in our text, the way it's broken down, by the way, most of these single questions look like two questions <laughs> because of the way we translate things in our punctuation. Okay, so Romans 3, 1 and 2. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew? 
Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? So, Paul just said, look, circumcision, real, real Jewishness, is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the spirit. And so if Paul said that, they would be thinking, well, what's the point of being one of God's chosen people if there isn't any benefit to that? Okay, that would be their question. And Paul says, look, there's many advantages to being Jewish, but he points out just one. He says, look, the, the Jewish people, they were the first ones to be given God's word. Right? All other people lived and died with no direct knowledge of the one true God, but the Jews were entrusted to receive the Word of God on behalf of all humanity. They have been given the opportunity to know, to love, and to follow God by faith, looking forward to the coming Savior, and they received this privilege long before anyone had any real knowledge of it. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he brings up a next question. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, um, that's uh, verse 3, by the way. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Right? Well, Paul has already said, look, God's going to pour out judgment and wrath on sin, ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's going to pour out wrath on that, even on the Jews. His own people. And they might rationalize, well, look, some Jews have been unfaithful to God, but he still made a promise to us. Right? We're his chosen people. God couldn't turn his back on one of us at the judgment. He would never do that because then he would be breaking his promise to Israel as a whole, wouldn't he? And Paul says in verse 4, by no means. It's like he's saying, look, how does the fact that God's going to judge unfaithful Jewish people suggest he isn't faithful to his people? He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, those, um, they were relying on their history, on their heritage for salvation, and they think like, look, I'm going to be like excused from the judgment simply because, I, hey, I'm part of God's people. Right? This is kind of the basis of the, the falsehood of the entitlement of religious identity. Right? I'm not going to face judgment and wrath. I'm part of God's people. And Paul takes them to the words of the greatest leader, maybe the greatest person in their minds in the history of Israel, King David. He's a person that God called a man after his own heart. David was overall a very godly man by that standard, but he sinned. He messed up. We know the big story especially, right? Like his most obvious sin was when he slept with Bathsheba, who was a married woman. She became pregnant. David tried to cover it up. And when that failed, he had her husband killed in battle. God knew all this, and he sends a prophet to tell him, to pronounce this judgment on him. And he tells him that the baby that she was carrying would die because of David's sins. Now that, that seems pretty harsh. And that might be something we have to wrestle a little bit with. Like, oh, why would God do that? We're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to get into that. But here's the point. David didn't blame God for judging him. He saw God as just. 
Right? The, the passage that Paul quotes here, Psalm 51, 3 through 4, says this For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's where Paul's quote comes from. Now, we don't know for sure whether David penned those words before or after his affair with Bathsheba. We, we don't know. But at whatever point he wrote these words, he clearly was aware that he was sinful. And he saw no issue whatsoever with God judging him for it. Even though he was a Jew even though he was a man after God's own heart. And that's what Paul's getting at is this, like by, by no means is God unfaithful when he holds an unfaithful Jew accountable or an unfaithful person accountable. By no means should God overlook sin just because of a person's history and heritage. He didn't hold back his judgment on David. And David was the greatest leader in Israel's history. And David still saw him as right and just, even in passing judgment on himself. And Paul's saying, look, we should do the same. We should do the same. Okay, next question or thought. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human terms. By no means, for then how could judge God judge the world? Now, one of the things that um, people often try to do is use some pretty twisted logic. For instance, if we were to put this into the context we've used the last few weeks, talking about, say, speeding tickets or something like that, the logic goes like this. If I'm speeding and the police officer sees me, I get a ticket. So I show up in court, and I argue my fine should be dismissed. Why? Because my act of speeding actually gave the officer a chance to do something good. To show his authority in the world and to act in righteousness. So in a sense, I was just doing my civic duty. Right? Why should I be punished for it? Even though my actions were wrong, they gave an opportunity for him to show his righteousness. Well, that's the kind of twisted logic that Paul is exposing here for the Jewish people. He heads off this argument by saying, look, if God can't judge us for our unrighteousness on account of us being Jewish, how, how can he rightly judge the rest of the world? Like God would be a hypocrite for holding the sinful Gentiles accountable while ignoring the sins of the Jews. It, it would be like this double standard. That's not just, and God is a just God. Now, I think that this argument or this thing that Paul brings up can go into even deeper places, and I want to explore it just, just for a minute because um, it's, it's a type of thinking that also, I think, needs to be challenged from us. And, and that's this, that some people just don't believe in the judgment of God. They don't think God's going to send wrath on anyone. 
Yeah, they know that these things are in the Scriptures, but they just don't want to believe a loving God would ever do something like that, right? And admittedly, it's tough to swallow. Right? It means we have to trust a God who has attributes and aspects about Him that maybe we don't like, that we don't think are fair, that we don't think are right. But let's, let's run with this idea for a minute that God wouldn't judge anyone. Look, he can't forego his judgment. He can't let sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness go unpunished. If he did that, it would make him unjust. An unjust God. That would go against, completely against his own nature. Not only that, it would make him a liar. Because he isn't going to then do what he said he was going to do. And that's a problem, right? Like in our house, we, we tried to, this is just a human household, right? But we tried to foster an environment where people would tell the truth. I know my dad hated it when us kids would lie because lying like erodes all credibility, right? You can't be believed about anything and you can't be trusted. So now let's follow that out when it comes to God. If God doesn't follow through, and judge sin, despite the fact that he says he's going to judge sin, not only would that make him unjust, but it would also make him a liar. He wouldn't be keeping his word. So how could you believe anything that he ever said is true or right? You'd have to throw it all out. Right? Something to think about when we want to dismiss some of the true aspects of who God is. God is a God of justice, and he's a God of truth. Yes, he's a God of love, but justice and truth, he's all of that. He's not a liar. And Paul says, let God be true, though everyone else is a liar. Okay, so his next question kind of carries this a little bit further. Verse 7, he says, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Right, that kind of goes back to the why don't you just rip up the speeding ticket? I mean, hey. And then here's the next step. And why not do evil that good may come? Right? Like intentionally. You know, as, and, and Paul notes here, as some people slanderously charge us as saying, with saying. Right? That's not what he said in any way. He says their condemnation is just. So this, similar thi- this is similar thinking to the last question Paul raised. Why would God condemn me for lying if, if my lying actually is uh, lets God show his mercy and grace in the world? And then Paul says, take that a step further. Why not just do evil that good may come? Like if God's righteousness and goodness is evident because of my sin, why hold back from anything sinful? After all, I'm actually helping God out and giving him a greater opportunity to show mercy and grace if I just really go for it in a bad way. And sadly, a lot of people live this way. Maybe sometimes without even realizing it, but they're taking God's grace for granted, not worrying about correcting sinful behavior. But go back to what Paul said in Romans 2. Verses 4 and 5, he said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, you're supposed to have a change of heart, a change of behavior as well. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? Those who are living like this are just asking for it, Paul says. Right? Their condemnation is just is what he writes. So verse 9, last of the questions. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Right? Remember now, he started with the question, is there any advantage to being a Jew? To which his answer was, yes, definitely. But now he brings that full circle here and he asks, so are we Jews any better than them? Are, are we Jews any better off than they are? Can we lean on our Jewishness to save us in a way that they can't? When all is said and done and we're facing like eternal judgment, will we be able to rest on our history and our heritage to save us? And the answer is no. Verse 9. No, not at all. Paul says. Like no one's regarded as better in regards to the righteous standards of God. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Bottom line, he says, we're all sinful people. We're all sinful people. Religious identity is not going to cut it. And then he goes on, he says, um, uh, in this next section, he kind of puts together this mashup of Old Testament quotes. Right? And he says this, verses 10 through 18, so a big chunk here all at once. Uh, As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, all of these words and phrases that are put together here are either quoted or closely paraphrased from like Old Testament passages. There are like six or seven of them, but there's three in particular that are most notable. Um, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which are virtually identical psalms. So that's kind of the the first one. And then Isaiah 59. We're not going to work through them. I would encourage you at some point, maybe just go read through them. They're not very long, seven, six, seven verses. But what I want to point out, though, is this. When a teacher in Paul's day, uh, in Jesus' day, would uh, quote scripture. The reader or the listener was meant to associate the whole passage with their reference, not just those specific verses, typically. Right? It was kind of a common teaching tool or teaching method of the day. That you would associate more than just the specific words said, you would associate the whole of the passage because they knew the scripture really well. So it's safe to assume Paul intended for them to get the whole picture of those particular passages that he quoted. And so listen to the, the end of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The last verse is this. 
We'll pull this up on the screen, I think. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Okay, that one didn't come out right. Isaiah 59. Let's try this one. It's a little different. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Right? In each of these passages, Paul alludes to um, the part that describes the true condition of all humanity. Even the Jews. None is righteous. Not even one, Paul says. So he paints this pretty bleak picture of humanity. But also within those passages, they conclude by mentioning the coming of the Savior. Right? And people would have gotten that. And I think we need to see it as well. Because when we read those words, boy, it's pretty dark. Boy, it's pretty heavy. It paints a pretty bleak picture. But there is hope. There is Jesus. And those passages also point to him. The religious leaders in Rome were perceptive, which they likely were. They would recognize these scriptures were ultimately pointing people toward Jesus. And so then Paul wraps up this idea of salvation through religious identity in verse 19-20, talking again about the law, right? God's law. And he says the law, like the law was another thing that totally distinguished Jewish people from all others. And he says this in verse 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Like no one's going to have an argument. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, so that's the end of the passage. But remember how last week Paul had, we talked about how Paul said, that those who don't have the law are going to perish in their ignorance, while those with the law will be judged by it, right? The law itself shows that everyone is guilty of sin. That's his point he's making here. Now you think about this. Every non-Jewish person who ever existed, uh, they sinned against God. Mainly, Because they didn't have the law to go by. And so they might be tempted to stand before God and say, at the judgment, and maybe even blame Him and say, well, of course I sinned. You never gave me the law, so I didn't know any better. But Paul says, look, then there are the Jews who have the law. We, the Jews, have the law. And even though we have the law, Every Jew that had the law still sinned against God. So that argument doesn't really hold up. Because even if they had the law, it wouldn't have worked. Neither person's argument is going to hold before God. That it will stop every mouth, Paul says. Law or no law, no one is without fault in the eyes of God. So Paul's point here is that, look, everyone's guilty. right? The Jews having the law aren't really any better or better off than the rest just because they have the law. So here's the summary, if we could sum it all up. Religious identity, history and heritage can't save anyone. That's what Paul's getting at. Your religious identity can't save you. 
you think it can, you're fooling yourself. It's like this false sense of entitlement. Only faith in Jesus can accomplish that. Only faith in Jesus can accomplish that. Now again, Paul was focused on Judaism back in his day. But I do see this issue of religious identity playing out in a couple of ways these days. And uh, this is kind of where maybe the application comes in for us. So I want to kind of close with, with just a couple of quick thoughts on that. And the first one is this, that some churches or denominations, Christian churches, denominations, genuinely believe they are the only ones going to heaven. They're the only ones going to heaven. Now again, talking about Christian churches here, not world religions. And they believe their group is special. They're the only correct ones. They have it right. Everyone else has it wrong. Uh, Sherry and I, my wife Sherry and I, have a Catholic background. And I'm not normally into saying, like, okay, here was our church that we used to be a part of, but I, I need to for explanation for this. Um, there are things doctrinally that we just did not agree with there, which is why we left years and years and years ago. Now, my parents were pretty understanding of that. Um, we, as a family, had attended a number of different churches over the years, so they kind of got where we were coming from. However, Sherry's parents, they had a really hard time. Because to them, it was as if we had thrown away our ticket to heaven. Partly because that's what they have been taught and told for years and years and years. Their church was the right way. Everything else was not legit. It was false. Now, they've come around a bit over the years. Um, still never come to visit church here, though. Right? And while that's a lot less common these days, that kind of exclusive thinking, it's still an issue that comes up. And this is where that issue gets tricky. Christian, uh, the, a Christian church that thinks they're exclusive usually is pointing to a theological belief or a theological practice or their collective theology and saying, uh, we've got the truth. We've got it right. And it's important to be seeking the truth of Scripture and holding to it as a church. Really important. So I'm not trying to dismiss that. I will say this as at Portico here, we have a pretty simple doctrinal statement. We try not to fight over beliefs that aren't too central. Right? There are things that are black and white in Scripture, and we kind of want to let the gray areas be gray. To be able to say, look, churches, legitimate Christian churches are going to disagree on some of these. There are some things we will fight and die for. There are other things that we will not. And I do want to say, if you want to be reminded of what are those things, or if you're curious for me even saying that, it is on our website, but we do have uh, some, I made some uh, copies at the back. You can grab one as you go if you want to go, hey, what is it? What is our statement? No, that's not the only things that we teach, but those are the things doctrinally that we'll say, this is, this is something we're going we're gonna to fight for. You've always got to be sure your church is holding to the truth of Scripture rather than its history or heritage or tradition. When a church believes their version of Christianity is the only one and that they alone have it right, be wary of that. Because if getting it right excludes everyone else, then what happens if they turn out to be wrong? <laughs> right. 
the danger with that is just like the danger people in Judaism had. The Jewish people of Paul's day. Like, they may be clinging to their religious identity rather than to Christ. Okay, so that's the first way I think we see that sometimes. Clinging to Christian religious identity. Oh, sorry, this is the second point, but um, clinging to uh, religious identity as a uh, denomination or a church instead of, uh, and genuinely believing they're the only ones that get to heaven. Second, is, is that some people cling to their Christian religious identity despite not having any real relationship with Jesus. Right? Now this isn't so much about a denomination or a church as a whole. This is more about individuals. This is more of a personal thing. Like sometimes there's very little evidence of a relationship with Jesus in someone's life. Like They think they're good with God even though there's no spiritual fruit being produced in them. And oftentimes these people will cling to their baptism, their confirmation, the day they said the sinner's prayer five decades ago. Other times they'll cling to a connection with someone who is obviously a Christ follower. I mean, I've heard this numerous times like, oh yeah, my grandpa was a pastor. My family went to this church growing up. My uncle is a missionary. That's great. But, that's not going to get you into heaven. If there isn't anything going on spiritually in your own life, if you think you're somehow good with God because of that association, then you're relying on your religious identity to save you. Again, it gives a false sense of entitlement. It's no different than the Jews who figured they were good with God because they were Jewish. We got Abraham. We got the law. We got the prophets. Right? I'm Jewish. I'm good. It's not enough. It's not enough. In fact, it can oftentimes pull people away from what matters most, and that's a relationship with Jesus. Right? So with both sets of people, whether it's from a denominational standpoint who thinks that they're the only right way, or whether it's the person who is clinging to to some religious identity rather than to knowing Christ. I think it's important to help them see they have a likely a false sense of entitlement. They're trusting in the wrong thing. Their religious identity, their history and their heritage can't save them. Only Jesus can. He's the only one that can accomplish that. So this morning as we close, I want to pray. Maybe there's somebody that comes to mind for you that you think, yeah, that fits a description of a church that some people I know are a part of. Or maybe this fits the description of a person I know. I, I know they're all about their heritage, their history, their tradition, their background. But there is no Jesus evidence in their life. Maybe you can think of some people that come to mind. I just want to pray for them this morning. And obviously pray for ourselves that we would have the opportunity to speak truth, the hope of Jesus, into their lives. So let's pray, and then we'll be closed. Father God, again, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the depth, the, uh, 
the detail, the challenge that you put out to us through these words that Paul wrote to the Romans. They weren't just words for a church thousands of years ago. These are words for us today. And we know that there are people in our lives and churches around us who may be clinging to their own religious identity as a way of thinking they're good with you. That salvation is coming because of a belief, of a tradition, of a history, of a heritage. Lord God, first of all, help us not to be stuck in that mode. Help us not to just take you for granted and think that that relationship that you want to have with us doesn't matter. Help us to pursue you. But also, God, give us the opportunity to speak to those who need to be challenged a little bit with this idea that maybe they're entitled to salvation just because they have some association or connection to the church or to you through someone else. We know that's not enough. You call us to a life of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And a response to the gospel, the good news of salvation. Help us to be able to share that truth. Give us eyes to see where it's needed to share. Give us courage to speak. And uh, God, we pray for hearts to be softened and broken where they need to be. That people would come to know you and not just some religious system. And God, we want to lift this before you this morning. We pray and thank you for uh, just the breakthrough that you've had in our life. That we have come to know you personally. And uh, we're grateful for that. Help others around us to come to that same place. We want to lift this all before you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.